Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Cast to start your week as we wrap up the month of March. Jay Patton to answer with you. Sure, there are no hockey games being played on the ice, but there are old games being aired on television. And of course, Drancer, as we've been doing, that's kept us occupied at the very least, and hopefully some others. We've had some fun with our colleague Dom LeCision's model at The Athletic, uh, taking these Canuck games that would have been played on a game-by-game basis. <laughs> and when, when last we checked in on this mighty hockey club uh, on an unbelievable roll, but... Uh, the win streak. I mean, all good things have to come to an end, and uh, right. the win streak. The win streak. <laughs> uh, it, the Canucks lost to Calgary in Dom's model on Friday, but they bounced right back with another win on Saturday against Anaheim. I have to say, and look, I th- usually think I'm pretty sharp when it comes to the schedule. I honestly thought that the Anaheim game was ahead of the Calgary game. Like, what in the world were they doing scheduling a Calgary Canuck game on a Friday night? Like that just felt like it should have been the Saturday Hockey Night in Canada game. There have been a few like that this year, haven't there? Like the Toronto Maple Leafs rolling into town on a Tuesday night. That was so weird. And I do wonder if that's partly the product of the team not having success, or at least not having a ton of success over the last five years, and maybe what that's looked like for television ratings to the executives back in Toronto, versus what we've come to expect from Vancouver. And I do think that was kind of changing slowly this year, but, you know, there's been a couple sort of weird indicators like that, especially in terms of the national schedule that sort of remind you that, you know, this was an exciting team, but this was an exciting team that had birthed itself from a stretch of hockey that had been, I think, quite dispiriting in this marketplace as, as you experienced every day. 
Right. I mean, I think McDavid and Matthews, that became the Saturday night prime time for hockey night. Right. So, you know, they wanted the Leafs to go to Edmonton on a Saturday. So it wasn't a huge surprise that the Leafs came through Vancouver midweek. That one, I mean, that used to always be the early start and that uh, got everybody all fired up in Vancouver. Riled but, up. <laughs> but and, and look, I didn't look, I didn't look at the Flames actual schedule that may have played into it, but uh, just in my head, I thought it was Anaheim Friday, Calgary on Saturday. Uh, they were flipped. The Canucks ended up losing to the Flames in Dom's model, but they, they get the win against Anaheim. They would have been in Dallas tonight, and again, an indication of just kind of where we are in all of this. Like, this would have been it. This was the, the final three games. This was the final week of the regular season. It's crazy. And that means, of course, Jeff, that this was the week. This was the week for Game 81. <laughs> Yeah, I had sort of resigned myself to the fact, just the way the Coyotes were going, that Game 81 probably yeah. wasn't going to mean an awful lot. The game in Glendale, the night that uh, everything was put on hold, you know, there was some significance to that game for both the teams. I think that's probably as good as it was going to get. I don't think the Coyotes were going to be able to hang around long enough in the chase to make Game 81 significant. No, I think you're right, but still... Game 81. I've been looking forward to this for months, and I, I'm going to still look forward to it and eagerly check Dom's projection and probably tweet it out with a big, like, Game 81! It didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, it didn't even happen. <laughs> Well, we'll have to uh, wait and see. I know that like nothing's changed as far as the Canucks in Dom's world would match up against Minnesota. We may have to have some fun on one of these vancasts and actually like break down the playoff series that was going to be that isn't actually going to ever take place. But uh, we'll <laughs> we'll worry about that. We'll see how the chips fall here over the final three games for the Canucks. They were in Dallas, uh, then to Arizona, and then they wrap things up at home against Vegas. Did you take in either of the? replays uh, over the weekend, whether it was Game 7 against the Flames in 94 or Slay the Dragon from 2011? I tried to watch, or sorry, I watched a bunch of Game 7 Slay the Dragon, of course. Uh, but, you know, the feed wasn't at its best. And I've actually been uh, working on a, a sort of Game 7-ish project and, you know, intend to produce some content about it this week, JPAT. And so, I, but I was watching it and I'd seen the versus feed recently on YouTube and I was pretty shocked that so much of, you know, so many key moments in the game were not shown on the replay broadcast on Sportsnet. Like that stunned me. And when I think back to game seven, I think back, you know, not just my oral history, but how I've thought about the game, right? The important thing I think to remember about that game you know more than the memories more than 2011 more than even Burroughs's goal is there's this beautiful sort of sporting maxim that is laid bare by what occurs in that game and, and for me anyway it's you get Alex Burroughs right this guy whose career is defined by this game on the one hand and you've got Chris Campoli whose career is similarly defined by this game in a lot of ways for the other reasons you know, the guy who made the great play at the blue line and scored the game overtime winner, the guy who turned the puck over. But when you look at the game sort of in a wider context, you know, and remember that Burroughs, yes, he scores the opener, but he makes the turnover on the power play that leads to the Jonathan Tave shorty. In his own words, he doesn't think he backchecks hard enough following that turnover and feels like that Tave's goal is his fault in the moment. He's the guy who takes the penalty and he, he thinks it's a lazy penalty. To this day, he says, I took a lazy penalty in overtime. 
worst two minutes of my life in that box that results in Patrick Sharp sort of having that grade A scoring chance backdoor that Luongo gets his blocker on. The penalty shot and the Patrick Sharp chance weren't shown during the replay. And I think without sort of getting those moments, you miss that the line between Campoli, between the GOAT, and the line between Burroughs, the hero who could have been in so many other instances in that game, the GOAT, you know, is so minimal, right? Like, there but for the grace of God go I is like the real story of that game, the real meat of it. And I think if you don't get that buildup, you kind of miss one of the things that makes that game so memorable, so riveting, so uniquely dramatic in the history of the Vancouver Canucks and, and Vancouver hockey. Right, and the network was taking a beating on social media from Canuck fans for leaving out those crucial parts. And, you know, I had suggested that in these crazy times in which we're living that, you know, the executives probably had the idea of let's replay the Slay the Dragon goal. And then it was actually like an intern is the only guy that's actually in the building to cut right. the tape to, you know, to, to go to air. And so that's why uh, we were presented that's a what good point. we were presented. Uh, the other thing for me is, and look, it, it's like the... Beret goal in Calgary in 94 like you've seen it so many times I kind of thought I had seen everything and I just thought it was hysterical that in the aftermath of Burroughs scoring and slaying the dragon and he slides into the sideboards and the celebrations on I had never like it's been a decade I had never seen Henrik Sedin who you know made a career of being three steps ahead of everybody knowing where he was going to go and where everybody else (laughs) on the ice was going to (laughs) go And there was this moment, this just glorious moment of indecision on his part about which pile to hop on, and he looked completely <laughs> paralyzed for a moment. And I had never really noticed that, but I loved it, and I tweeted it out, and I had some fun. And who liked it? The Dragon Slayer himself. Like, if that's not the seal of approval when Alex Burroughs likes a tweet about the Slay the Dragon goal. So I had some fun with that. And uh, I just, I, I don't know. I'd never picked up on that. I guess I had been watching everything else and, you know, where Burroughs had gone and who had jumped on him. But I just loved Henrik in that. Like, just, you know, indecision isn't a word that you would ever use to associate uh, with Henrik Sedin. And yet there it was in that moment. Which pile do I jump on? And I, I couldn't get enough of it. <laughs> the, uh... <laughs> the one of the funniest things that I find anyway about sort of talking to the guys about the celebration first of all the Blackhawks to a man to this day right like that Canucks core never won a cup right that team those teams have not played each other in the playoffs for nine years right but to a man to this day you ask the Blackhawks players about the series and their reactions in that moment and and I obviously tried to get granular with them right like I've tried to get you know, Patrick Sharp, Patrick Kane, Jonathan Taves, like I've talked to these guys and tried to get them to reflect on the moment that that goal happened and what their reaction was, right? And to a man, they smirk, they look at you and they go, it's a pretty big celebration for a first round series. (laughs) (laughs) Nine years later, to a man, they still sort of raise an eyebrow and get a a little bit of a knife stab in. Um, The other thing is Luongo bolts right like he bolts for burr yeah and um i don't think he makes it to burr i think cory schneider intercepts him and he ends up in a pile with andrew alberts and and cory schneider a couple boston college guys and but lou says lou says that it's the um 
it's the exact opposite reaction that he had from 2010, right? Like 2010, he sort of slowly like raises his hands and skates to mid ice, just like chill, taking in the moment in Vancouver, right? And this one, he he just flew to the other end of the ice. And and as I Luongo sort of says this to me when I was chatting with him, and then I read through my transcript, right? And I have this one great Corey Schneider quote where he's like, "Yeah, man." Lou was flying. <laughs> and and I talked to Schneider, remember, in New Jersey, right? Like a month before I got Luongo. And, uh, and, and yeah, I just remember going back through my transcript. And, yeah, man, Lou was flying. Uh, just really made me laugh when I was going through the transcript. You know, it's funny. That was 2011. The next year, obviously, was 2012. We know what happened there. Uh, a one seed against an eighth seed. And the LA Kings go on, use that as a springboard to their the first of their two Stanley Cups. And like when I look at those two series a year apart, and full credit to the Kings for doing what they did and, and ultimately winning the cup, but like I watched that the other night, and I just kept thinking to myself, like, damn, that was a heavyweight fight in the first round. I didn't feel the same way, um, even though the Kings were as solid as they were defensively, and you know they they were a good team once they made their coaching change and Daryl Sutter came in and, and got his systems in place. But when you just look at the star power that was on the ice, uh, the Hawks and the Canucks, and this isn't a revelation, but it was just driven home again. Like, I felt like I was watching an all-star game, essentially, but in the first round of the playoffs. Like, there was just so much incredible talent on the ice on both sides in that battle. When you think back to the 11-12 season, though, right? And obviously the Canucks won the cup, but and and there were some big games, right? who Who won the cup? Sorry, obviously the Canucks won the President's Trophy, the regular season championship. <laughs> that cup. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is what hap- this is what happens, J. Pat, when you when you ask me to podcast an hour earlier than planned. Um, <laughs> sorry. So when you think back to that eleven twelve Canucks team that clearly lost in the first round and won only one playoff game after winning the president's trophy awarded to the best regular season team. <laughs> when when you think back to that team, yeah, there were big wins and the Chicago or yeah, the Chicago um Blackhawks game, the Duncan Keith elbow, that kind of stands out. The Detroit Red Wings win, right, where the Canucks break the re- uh, the win streak, the record-setting home win streak that the Detroit Red Wings had going. And then, obviously, Game 8 in Boston. But you take sort of those games away, and it's amazing how joyless that whole season felt relative to 10-11. Don't you think? Like, even when you think back to how it looked, how it felt as it was going on, right? The, you know, sort of high points were like the American Express line and on and on. Like, it was... Just a, such a different feel around it than 10-11. And I think it also was reflected in the play style of the two teams. Yeah, and look, that second team, the 11-12, like, it didn't matter. They could have won all 82 games in the regular season. Like, none of that mattered, right? Like, they were never going to be judged on the President's Trophy for the second year in a row. It was always about getting to the playoffs and then getting it right the next time. And And I've long maintained that... You know, yeah, losing in Game 7 at home of a Stanley Cup final, like a massive disappointment, like probably the greatest disappointment. But if you step back and you look at sort of bigger picture disappointments about that era of the Canucks, it's that they were one and done. That that team, as good as it was, 
was one and done. Like, you know, you look at what the Bruins have done since then, back to two Stanley Cups. You know, the Blackhawks obviously yeah. got their three. The Kings won two. You know, so often the really good teams do get a couple of kicks at that can. And I think for me, that was always the great frustration and disappointment was that this team that had been assembled got to a game seven, lost on home ice. We knew that nothing they could do about it. But that next year, you know, they were supposed to have learned from their mistakes and they were supposed to get it right and to go out in the first round uh, the way they did on home ice. And, you know, and then that set the the wheels in motion, obviously, for the years to come. So uh, I always feel like, you know, yeah, there was unfinished business at home against Boston in Game 7, but there was a lot of unfinished business with that following year as well. Yeah, and I do think the... You know, extent to which, and I, I sort of didn't write this at the time. Like, I, I sort of pushed back on the idea because so many Canucks defenders had just such sparkling 2011 12 seasons. Like, if you look back and see what Ham Hughes, Bieksa, Edler, for example, all accomplished in that season, like, that was career year for across the board. I mean, 10 11 Ham Hughes was better, but 11 12 Ham Hughes had better numbers. And I mean, Kevin Bieksa led the Canucks in minutes. He had 44 points. Like, Edler had 49 points. Their their underlying numbers, and I was just looking at them this weekend, were ludicrous. Like, that team had two 55% Corsi 4 lines, two 55% Corsi 4 pairs. Like, they, they were a ridiculously good team, even though I just described that season as unfolding in a <laughs> joyless kind of fashion, which, I, you know, I still think was true. Think back to the disappointment in this market anyway after the Hodgson trade and on and on. I mean... The arguments in this market were just completely different than they had been the season before. But I do think stylistically, when you think about that season versus 10-11, like the biggest difference for me anyway is one season had a 50-point version of Christian Erhoff who just transitioned the puck in a way that, you know, I don't think we'd seen many Canucks defenders do aside from maybe Jeff Brown, Yerke Lume, and now Quinn Hughes, right? But Christian Erhoff in his two Canucks seasons was about as good as any Canucks defender has ever been. And I do think that that loss turned out to be a lot bigger than even I sort of grasped at the time. And, and and now that I look back with, you know, 10 years on, I sort of do think like that Erhoff loss and, and you know, he only played really two more seasons at that level that, that he hit in Vancouver in Buffalo, but he had two really good seasons before sort of some, some head injuries, complicated things for him. And nonetheless, I do think that that loss turned out to be way, way bigger than, you know, I, I think some people, as I recall, I think you appreciated it at the time. I don't think I did, though. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I thought a guy like Erhoff was a, you know, very solid component part, but I also thought that, you know, Alex Edler was emerging and you were right in sort of peak years of, of guys like Ham Houston BX, and I thought maybe they'd have enough there that, you know, they could cover that loss, but uh, there was no doubt. Erhoff just, you know, he, he made it look easy. Uh, that's what I loved about both him and Sammy Sallow. Like, they were such understated guys, right? Like, it was never uh, yeah. about drawing attention to themselves. It was just about being damn effective and efficient. And, uh, yeah, there's no doubt that they missed that. Hey, let's fast forward to today because the architect of that 2011 team, Mike Gillis, uh, hasn't had a job as a general manager in the National Hockey League since then. And, of course, uh, now comes word. Larry Brooks reporting in the New York Post over the weekend. Not one, but two interviews for Mike Gillis with the ownership group in New Jersey. And look, hockey's at a standstill right now. 
you know, Brooks's <laughs> Brooks's sort of position was, you know, why wouldn't you try to get ahead of everybody else with this stoppage? There's nothing that's preventing teams from hiring front office people or teams wanted to make coaching changes. You've spent some time with Mike Gillis and dealing with Mike Gillis uh, since his dismissal as the general manager of the Vancouver Canucks. What does Mike Gillis look like, do you think, if he gets a second chance as an NHL GM? Oh, man. I mean, look, first of all, I hope we see it just because I think Mike's a fascinating character. I think Mike's a very, very bright guy. And I think Mike could bring a lot to a team like New Jersey. Uh, You know, especially when you consider that Josh Harris ownership group went through the process with the Philadelphia 76ers. They're willing to try things. They're willing to be open-minded. They're a little bit impatient, but, you know, I think there's some reasons to believe that that could be a uniquely good fit. Uh, Obviously, they've already got a analytics department headed by Tyler Dello, uh, you know, a guy I know pretty well and whose work I've also long admired. Um, So, you know, the idea of a Gillis-Dello nexus running the New Jersey Devils, I mean, I find that hilarious, like completely hilarious. That would be a lot of fun just to see sort of how they do. I, I mean, I can't think of two... You know, in some ways, less conventional people to be sort of paired up, you know, and and I I think Gillis would look to be a president, right? I think he's made that pretty apparent. I don't think he'd look to be the GM, Um, you know, whether that's working with Tom Fitzgerald, a a guy I also know as a Florida Panthers alum and and who I think very highly of, to be very clear. You know, I, I think that could be a really interesting mix for them. That team needs some work, but they've got some really good pieces and they've got two sort of really good young centermen. I mean, I know Jack Hughes had a disappointing rookie year, but the underlying numbers on him look pretty good. Like, I I think that's a guy who can have a pretty big sophomore season just based on sort of what I'm seeing under the hood of his performance anyway. And so, yeah, I mean, look, I'd, I'd love to see Gillis get another shot just because I think I think his job in Vancouver looks a lot better in retrospect. I think the drafting was obviously problematic, but, and, you know, so was his handling of the media, right? Like, and I think that's sort of the one area that I'd expect him to look the most different if he gets another shot here. I suspect that he'd be more circumspect. I think he'd play ball a little bit more. Um, I think he's learned the importance of that. And, you know, when you look back at the Gillis era, I mean, boy, you know, I, you just think about that 2010-11 team and that third line, right? Like that third line, $2.5 million for Manny Malhotra, $1.3 for Yannick Hansen, $1 million for Rafi Torres. Like that third line started four shifts in the defensive zone for every one they got in the offensive zone. They played matchup minutes. Like they, they played, Vigneault deployed them similarly to how Green deployed Jay Beagle's line on occasion, right? Hunting matchups for them on the road, feeding them toughs at home. They actually outscored opponents that year. Like, again, I was under the hood of the 10-11 Canucks this weekend because of the replays. Like, they outscored opponents in those circumstances. And they cost $5 million, J-Pat. I mean, I do think that there's a lot that Mike Gillis can offer. I do think he's a really really smart guy, a really different thinker. I think that could be a really interesting situation with that ownership mix and that analytics group. And, you know, we'll sort of see. Now, I'm not sure if it's real or not, but I will tell you this. About two weeks before the suspension of the season, 
Um, I, I think I called Mike Gillis a couple times and I couldn't reach him. And that to me means that it's serious. <laughs> the fact that Gillis stopped returning my calls uh, indicates to me anyway that, that this is a serious possibility. And uh, again, it would be a lot of fun. And then the last thing to note is, can you imagine in the event that the Canucks are found to have missed the playoffs this season, oh. right? The idea of a 2021 campaign unfolding with Mike Gillis, the owner of an unprotected Canucks first rounder, like what a what a nightmare scenario that should be for this hockey market. Uh, yeah, for the market, but uh, for those of us in media, uh, endless storylines. <laughs> yeah, delicious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you mentioned scouting and the sort of you know that is one of the black marks, obviously, on on Mike and his staff and that time for the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, just want to take a sec here because now that we know uh, the, the league announced last week cancellation of uh, you know, the award show, not a huge deal, uh, but the draft in Montreal and the scouting combine. And we know, too, that you know junior hockey seasons have been put on hold, international tournaments as well. Do uh, you think the Canucks are reasonably well positioned as a modern-ish front office uh, to handle these kind of changes like you know they had their mid-season scouting but you know every team in the league obviously was going to want to look at uh, junior hockey playoffs and the U18s and those types of things you know when you look back at last summer you know the move that was made that was sort of universally lauded in the public sphere was Ryan Beach getting hired a guy that we both know well uh, have worked with uh, you know and he got brought on board as a video analyst, essentially video scout, uh, to help and augment that part of the department for the Vancouver Canucks. Now, it's not just Ryan, but uh, we know the quality of work that uh, he's certainly capable of doing. You know, these are different times. And just what you know of NHL front offices, do you think this poses uh, any particular challenges to one organization more than others? And do you think the Canucks are positioned reasonably well to conduct their scouting via video, you know, to put the finishing touches on their, their ultimate draft list? Yeah, you know, a really interesting question. I do think that ha having a guy like Beach, um, you know, having Aiden Fox, having those guys who focus on video and not the way that Daryl Sword and... and Travis Green's coaching staff do, but, you know, focusing on those sort of European leagues and, uh, you know, the, the amateur side of the equation. I mean, I do think that that isn't necessarily common. I do think that helps the Canucks. On the other hand, I do think that the Canucks have, you know, and most GMs go to the U18s, but I do think Jim spends a little bit more time actively on the road scouting than you run of the mill NHL GM, right? Like they all go see a game or two here and there. You know, you run through Toronto. If an AHL team's playing, you maybe go see the Marlies the night before the Leafs game. Like, every, you know, maybe maybe you drive to Owen Sound one day to see a game, right? Like NHL GMs do that typically, but I think Jim goes on scouting trips, right? Like there are weeks where he's just away from the team scouting wherever, right? And so I do think Jim takes a more active role than your average NHL GM in terms of actually seeing games. And so for that reason, I do think that Vancouver's sort of process is maybe disrupted more than your average team. But I do also think that there's a variety of sort of different things that they have as a, as a team with steadier cash flows, with a larger staff, with designated sort of prospect video guys that does position them to at least sort of overcome those disruptions 
you know, better than some of the leaner front offices around the league. I mean, you'd think about you'd think about like Toronto has, you know, so much so much front office staff that does a ton with video too. So they'd sort of be in that mix, uh, maybe f- first among teams in the, on that list, uh, as would maybe a team like Colorado. Some of the teams that have lighter scouting staffs as well are sort of perhaps a little bit better suited to, you know, doing some of these things. And then obviously the Buffalo Sabres, the organization that Jim came up in, they did a ton of video scouting in general. Uh, You know, they were like a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of using that 20 years ago. So I I do wonder if Jim's maybe also a little more familiar with that environment than your average hockey exec. So the, those those are sort of some of the issues that I that I think are at play. It's a really interesting question and certainly one that bears unpacking further. But my guess would be that a their overall process disrupted more than average, but that they're slightly better positioned to take advantage of that um, in terms of workflow than than most NHL teams. I thought it was interesting when Jim did his most recent conference call after they had signed Will Lockwood and, and Mark Michaelis, mm-hmm. and I had asked him if he had, you know, on any of his scouting missions had he had a chance to see Michaelis in person and he said no that Pat Conacher was the guy essentially that was banging the drum uh the hardest but then Jim said I've watched a lot of video on him and so you know you're right like there will be times where Jim is on a road trip and then all of a sudden he's not at a game or two and usually that means that he's out you know scouring the bushes and and checking out hockey games but uh he hadn't had a chance to see a guy like Michaelis in person but mentioned on that conference call that yeah he'd watched a fair bit of tape on him but you know it was the recommendation of the scouting staff that ultimately got him uh, on board to to make the decision there I just want one other thing about Michaela that we didn't talk about because Harm did a I thought a terrific it was a really fun read the Q&A yeah, got him over in Germany and uh, you know it read well sounds like a talkative guy you know well-spoken at least uh, on paper uh, the way it came across and I have no doubt that uh, you know like Harm had a good discussion with him I was texting with Harm as well I just told him that it was a fun read I just loved the fact that this guy played on a junior line with Leon Dreisaitl and Dreisaitl had 200 points in 28 games ridiculous and he wasn't even the leading scorer on that line <laughs> I like that too <laughs> <laughs> and then Michaelis Michaelis said that Dreisel would get mad at, you know they'd be up by 16 goals and he was still like upset at the end of the night and he, he wanted more like you know we're seeing him do that to NHL opponents now but I like it just took me back to think of like a 15 year old Leon Dreisaitl just absolutely wreaking havoc on like the German Junior League but when you see it in print 200 points in 28 or 29 games it was ridiculous yeah, 97 goals. <laughs> and then the playoff stats, the playoff stats are just as funny, right? Five games played, 16 goals. And it's like, how do you how do you score 16 goals in five games and then only play five games in the playoffs? Like, did they lose? <laughs> everybody else just but, quit. I think everybody else yeah. <laughs> That's it. <we're> <laughs> but the most uncharitable take that I... Uh, there was a really uncharitable take in a, in a group chat that I'm in with Harmon and one of the analytics savvy Canucks bloggers. And I, I wish I could attribute this, but I can't, I just don't remember who it was, but someone was like, <laughs> you know, uh, on the one hand, it's cool that you're on a line that with these guys putting up 200 points in 30 games. On the other hand, how do you only have 70? How, how are you only in on 70 of those goals? <laughs> Which I just thought was hilariously uncharitable. 
Um, but a, but a very funny observation by a stats inclined uh, Canucks blogger. No, look, uh, Harmon did a great job. That's a piece everyone should go read. That because you're right, Michaelis did come through as having a great sense of humor, and the idea of a 16 year old Leon Leon Dreisaitl, you know, going be, being like really upset with himself because he finished three goals short of a hundred in a 29 game season. <laughs> um, you know, I find that extremely amusing. I uh, just want to mention that Steve Levy from ESPN is going to join the Two Man Advantage podcast with Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebrun this week, so you can look for that at The Athletic. Uh, just before we finish up here, uh, you working on anything uh, that uh, readers should be looking for? I know that uh, you were talking about revisiting your, your preseason predictions for the Canucks. We did that uh, at the midway mark, but you're going to take a, a year-end look? Yeah, I'm taking a year-end look. My first three are really good, and then the rest of it, it really falls apart from there, J-Pat. Um, <laughs> the the <laughs> predictions <clears throat> revisiting the predictions piece will be up uh, today at the Athletic, and then I've got a project I'm really excited about working on it with Harmon and with Dom LeCision. Um, <clears throat> we're we're creating the Sedine Cup, and Harmon and I will compete for it this week. Uh, so readers should stay tuned to to see what that's all about. But I I, I suspect we'll get into a bit a bit on Thursday. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Well, we'll look forward to that. Uh, look forward to catching up with you midweek as we uh, continue uh, to make the pledge here of uh, two van casts a week, even though games aren't being played. Uh, still lots of things to get to in and around the Vancouver Canucks and the National Hockey League. And at some point, uh, certainly there will be more news dumped into the cycle. But uh, let's leave it there for today for Drancers. J-Pat, as always, thanks so much for listening. Hope that we can help you get through these uncertain times with a little bit of hockey talk here on the Vancast, the Athletic and the Athletic.com. <laughs>